Yes, I am not Troy Hamilton, although I want to be. Well, this morning we have a lot of ground to cover. If you notice, we've been kind of covering the faith of a specific individual over the past few weeks, and if you look in our passage today, we have, I think, six individuals, and then uh, at the end of that list of six, it says, and the prophets, and, and that sort of thing. So it's going to be a different kind of message. We won't be covering all six this morning uh, by, by any means, but we will be looking at the overcoming power of true faith. Just uh, received a report from the back. We had a little bit of a fainting spell, and the faint E is doing quite all right. And so uh, praise the Lord for that. And um, so um, that, that's, that's good. Um, you also notice in your notes a hint of color. Uh, the reason for that is because I changed my notes overnight um, and accidentally printed them in color. And I, so I apologize in advance to Denise Melendez, who uh, tries to keep our color copies down to a minimum. And so if you see next week that there's no color in the notes, uh, it's my fault that there's color in the notes this week. Um, and so we try to keep them as black and white as possible. Um, all right. Let's get into our message this morning. So we're going to kind of walk through this last section of Hebrews 11, and we're going to look at the overcoming power of true faith. Our, our first point that we're looking at this morning is this, exercising true faith can lead people to experience great things. There's no doubt about this, exercising true faith can lead people to experience great things. And so in verses 32 through 35, we really have our kind of our first group of people, and they are experiencing great triumphs. So what do these triumphs kind of teach us about faith and about the nature of faith, things that are important to understand about faith, which is kind of the whole theme of Hebrews 11? Well, letter number A is this. True faith brings glory to God, not to the person exercising true faith. This is very important that true faith brings glory to God, not to the person exercising true faith. Now, a great example of this would be in in that list of individuals, there would be Gideon defeating the Midianites. Gideon is told by God that he would defeat the Midianites And so Gideon gathers his army together, and he has approximately 32,000 individuals. So he's got 32,000 men, and God says, literally says to Gideon at this point, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. And it must have been a real humbling thing for for Gideon to kind of watch as his army of 32,000 moves next to 10,000, and then it whittles down to 300, especially since the army that Gideon faced, according to Judges 7 verse 12, said that they were like locusts in abundance. And it goes on to say, and their camels were without number as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. And so the enemy, there was a couple of, a couple of countries, and they were down in this valley. And as you're looking down into the valley at this army, there were camels without number. There was, a, there was a massive army that they were facing. You would think if you had a massive army you were facing, you would want a massive amount of men to uh, kind of up the ante. And yet God said, with the 300 men, I will save you and give Midian into your hand. 
And so Gideon believed God and he conquered a kingdom. In a very strange way, by the way, they, they went in armed with lamps and uh, clubs, I think, or something like that to, to kind of top off the deal. There was no way with, with all of these things, you're moved from 32,000 down to 300. Many of us remember the story, and then you move in with lamps and pitchers and other things like that. There was no way in the end that Gideon or his army could take any credit for themselves. And this is kind of a similar story for Barak. Barak's story, he had only 10,000 in his army, and he was facing the Canaanites who had 900 chariots of iron. Not to mention, if you think you have 900 chariots of iron, you probably have a, several thousand men in your army. And God gave Barak the victory as well, including in a very strange way by the hand of a woman who, you know, was very, had a very good aim, who took a tent peg and drove the, the leader of the enemy army into the ground through his head. And so David understood also that, that God gets all the glory from, from faith when he faced Goliath, you know, the champion of the Philistines, and in approaching Goliath on the field of battle, here's David, probably in his teens, maybe his young teens, you know, and so you're thinking, you know, 12, 13-year-old kid, you know, probably about this tall, you know, because, you know, people weren't as tall as they were then because we have all kinds of chemicals in our food, and so you have this, uh, you know, short young man who's facing a man who's nine foot tall, a seasoned veteran in fighting, a warrior who's, ha- who's armed to the teeth. And David says to Goliath, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, or in in fact, Yahweh of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. And so in other words, David was basically saying to Goliath, he was saying, you know, Goliath, the things that you trust in, the weapons that you trust in for victory are no match to the thing that I trust in. You trust in weapons, you trust in shield, you trust in skill. I trust in Yahweh, and he will give me the victory. And David got the victory. And so true faith, when, when exercised, will always bring glory to God alone. Now, in my message, I have a couple of rabbits, but they do apply to the point. So here's the first rabbit. We're going to kind of answer the question of why. Why, when a person's exercising true faith, does God receive all the glory for that situation? Well, a couple of things. First of all, if God gave glory to anything other than himself, he would cease being God. This is a very important point to make, that that God is stuck with being God. God is the the most God-centered being in the universe, and so he will always bring glory to himself. Now, he will bring joy to those exercising true faith in him, but he will always bring glory to himself. God will never point to somebody and say, look how great, that, that person's so great, they're greater than I am. But just as important, and the second thing is, the people listed in Hebrews 11 are not always paragons of virtue. I mean, let's admire, let's, let's, let's go, let's admire Abraham the most. You mean the guy that lied about his wife? You mean the guy who gave in to that whole Sarai Hagar situation? Well, what about Gideon? What about Gideon? Let's, let's pick him to be kind of the, the man on the pedestal. What about Gideon? Well, you mean the guy who, after the battle took place, he took all of the gold pendants from the enemy's camels and made an idol from it? Well, well, how about Samson? Well, never mind. How about David? No. 
David, in one fell swoop of, of, of sinful activity, hit all the biggies. Adultery, murder, deceit, and cover-up. Okay, well, how about Rahab? You mean the woman who, in her first act of faith, told three lies in a matter of a few verses? I know you dealt with that last week, Troy, so I'm not going to hit on that again. I mean, don't get me wrong, these, these people exercised deep faith. And in those moments, they, they are to be imitated, I believe. I mean, if Abraham believed God and left his country, there's some of us that ought to believe God in such ways. But if they are, were to receive glory for those moments, or if maybe you or, or you or, or any of us were to receive glory for exercising true faith, then we would be bringing glory to sinners. Sinners were never meant for pedestals when it comes to the things of God. And so this is, this is very encouraging news for us. We are never to look at the list of Hebrews 11 and be intimidated into thinking we're not spiritual enough. That we may never see what these folks have seen. We're never going to see parted seas and walls fall down and, and uh, you know, miraculous moments like these folks have seen. But as fellow sinners saved by grace, we are as capable as they are to trust in God's promises as they did. And true faith brings glory to God alone. The second point is this. True faith shows that God can deliver his people from anything. Pastor Kent Hughes in his commentary on Hebrews makes an interesting observation that the, the triumphs listed in verses 33 through 35 can be grouped into three groups of three. He calls them triads. And they kind of illustrate really kind of the comprehensive nature of God's deliverance through faith. So the first group kind of illustrates the general or broad empowering of true faith. So that would be conquering kingdoms, enforcing justice, and obtaining promises. These are not only things that happen to, to those mentioned in the passage, but they kind of uh, are kind of things that can, then, that can kind of happen, you know, to all of the people in Hebrews 11. All of them saw promises answered. Abraham and Moses and Joshua saw kingdoms conquered. Moses enforced justice by receiving and administering the law. And so what this basically represents is that when, when God operates through faith to, to deliver his people, it, he doesn't, you know, kind of pigeonhole us into thinking, okay, we've got to have this specific event or these specific details or, or this amount of faith or something like that. There's kind of this broad, general uh, opportunity that, that God can provide and, for his people and deliver them as well. Now, the second group gets a little bit more specific, kind of more personal deliverances. So you have stopping the mouths of lions. I don't think any of us will necessarily face that. In fact, it only applies to four people in the Old Testament. You have Samson who grabs a lion by the mouth and tears the lion apart. You have David who, when he's watching his sheep, grabs a lion by the beard and runs it through with a sword. And then you have Benaiah, you know, one of David's mighty men who uh, finds himself on a snowy day jumping into a pit and killing a lion. But of course, the most famous and probably the most applicable to Hebrews 11 was who? Daniel. 
Daniel, who was thrown into a pit of hungry lions overnight and was pulled out of the pit untouched because the Lord sent an angel to keep the lions tight-lipped. The next thing is quenched the power of fire, and obviously this points to who? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who were in a fiery furnace with either the Lord's angel or the Lord himself. I believe it's the Lord himself, and when the, the three came out, they didn't even smell like smoke. And then when it comes to the next thing, kind of escape the edge of the sword, you kind of have David, and then when it comes to the prophets, both Elijah and Elisha escaped the edge of the sword. And then finally, you have kind of the third group, which Pastor Hughes calls the astounding power of true faith. And these would fit more into the kind of the faith that amazes category. So, so those were kind of the Excuse me, people who were weak were made strong. And this clearly applies to, to Samson, doesn't it? Who, uh, you know, eventually gives over his secret of his strength, sits down, lays at the, you know, at the lap of Bathsheba, who, uh, not Bathsheba, I said Samson and Bathsheba. Delilah, thank you. One of those names they end with, uh. So Delilah, whew, um, and, and, and so he lays down at the lap of Delilah, and, you know, and, and she, uh, of course, shaves his head uh, with the help of, I think, one other person, and he loses his strength, finds himself grinding other people's corn in prison for years, possibly, and then uh, as his hair slowly grows back, he has this moment where he, relying on God again, receives his strength back and delivers, no pun intended, a crushing defeat to the Philistines as he pulls the roof down on top of them. Individuals became mighty and put foreign armies to flight. This, of course, is Samson, who, again, is in a moment where he grabs the jawbone of a donkey and kills a thousand Philistines. David put foreign armies to flight. And then it says, and women received back their dead by resurrection. These are all these miraculous things that God has done. And so the prophet Elijah, uh, you know, with the son of the widow of Zarephath, the prophet Elisha, also with the son of the Shunammite woman, both, you know, laid down prostrate over these kids, and they came back to life and brought their live children back to these widows. And so we have kind of nine different ways here that the Lord provided for His people through faith. And some were broad, some were more common situations, some of them were less common and more personal. Others were even more unique and astounding. And again, this is encouraging to us because we, uh, we live according to God's promises, or we should. And when we trust in his promises, we can also know that God can deliver his people from anything if he wants to. God can, you know, terrible diagnosis of cancer, next day, no cancer at all. God can deliver in that way, in a, in a miraculous way. Maybe something a little specific, but not necessarily miraculous, you know. Maybe you got a letter from the IRS. And the Lord grants you avenues of providence and ways to uh, handle that financial situation. Not something that necessarily happens to everybody, but it's a little more unique. And then maybe it's more broad in general. You know, Lord, my knee hurts. And God can provide for you in that way. The second main point, so those are the sub-points. The second main point now is this. Exercising true faith can lead people to endure 
great tragedy. Exercising true faith can lead people to endure great tragedy. Here we have in verse 35 this amazing turn in the description of true faith. I mean, talk about opposite extremes. We have these people who have experienced these victories, and then all of a sudden now you have this very grim term that happens in verse 35. But before we get into this section, rabbit number two here, we need to look at a very important point. And I think this is important because faith is thrown out there, you know, there's this false faith that's thrown out there that we really need to be aware of. Okay, and so here's, here's the point. There's a, there's a vast difference in the results of exercising true faith between the previous verses and these verses right here in verses 35b, verses 38. But there is no difference in the faith that is being exercised. That's really important to point out. The, the first group did not exercise some kind of mega faith, let's say. So defeating armies and, you know, receiving back your dead and other things like that. They did not exercise some type of extra special faith or any kind of mega faith while the second group, you know, didn't have enough faith. Because sometimes you'll say that. Why are these people suffering? Well, it's because they don't have enough faith. Because there's a, (coughs) there really is a kind of a false faith that is out there that is highly publicized and and sells lots of books. And it's really kind of a a man-centered faith with kind of this whitewashed veneer of spirituality where God is pretty much only concerned with your comfort or your well-being rather than his glory. And so, Mystery Man <coughs> does a really good job to, 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 to show us that true faith is sometimes altogether different than that false faith that is out there. And we know this by this, worse, this use of the word some in verse 35, where it kind of does this turn and says, some were tortured. Some simply means part of the whole. So if I were to say something like, (coughs) excuse me, that's not what I was supposed to say, but um, suppose I were to say some of you are going to be going to Wharf 850 for lunch. Just throw that out there. Some are like, that's a good idea. But uh, um, some of you go to work, and, and what that basically means is that you, as part of this whole group, having the same kind of experience of worship together, are going to have kind of an altogether different experience because not everyone's going to go to the Wharf 850 or something like that. And, and what I mean by that is Mr. Man's trying to point out here that some, in other words, part of this group that is exercising true saving faith are about to have a totally different experience. They will have this vastly different experience from the same faith. A good way to remember this, a good way kind of a catchphrase kind of thing that you can kind of remember this by is, is to say something like, true faith leads some people to kingdoms and other people to caves. That's a good way to remind that, that true faith leads some people to kingdoms and other people to caves. It's not a situation where, you know, oh, Joe over there, he's got, you know, this great miracle that's happened in his life. He's got great faith. Oh, oh, Sally over here, boy, she's just living in poverty. What's wrong with her? That's not what's happening here. And so the next question is, thank you, sir, what do these tragedies, we asked what the triumphs taught us about faith, what do these tragedies teach us about faith? Okay, and so the first thing is this, 
True faith gives endurance in times of persecution. Verse 35 does not beat around the bush when it goes from women received back their dead by resurrection, and then it goes to some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. This word tortured, we get our word timpani from this word. Tumpanon is is kind of the Greek word, and it literally was a, a word used for a large round drum. Okay, so if you saw a large round drum back then, it would be called the tympanon. But the word also was used to describe an instrument of torture. It was a a large wooden frame, probably so-called since it resembled the drum, on which criminals were bound and beaten to death. And sometimes maybe even worse things were done to them. And so the term became synonymous with, with beating, whether it was on a drum or on a prisoner. So as they were kind of being brutally tortured, why on earth did they endure it and refuse to accept release? And the answer is because of their faith. (laughs) How do we know this? This statement, so that, or basically means for the purpose of this. And so it doesn't say it outrightly because it doesn't, but it does say that they refuse to accept release, which makes me think, you know, either we beat you or you renounce your faith and we'll release you. They're giving them the, the option of getting out. And it sounds like they're in prison to begin with because of their faith. You know, and often we put these people in the moment when they are kind of heroically, <coughs> excuse me, giving it all, you know, away for their faith or, or something like that, which is true. But, but think about this, you know, when, when, when this person is given an option to renounce their faith and, and escape, maybe you're a dude and, and really, in that time period, maybe you got a wife and kids, the only way they're going to, you know, receive any kind of food or anything like that is if you're employed. So, in a way, by saying, you know, I will not turn my back on Christ, go ahead and, and kill me on the, on the tympanum, you're basically saying, you know, kind of maybe offering an indirect death wish to your, to your family. So, so some real things to consider here, you know, we often put these people in these heroic moments of, boy, what great faith, they said no to release, you know, because of this and that sort of thing. But there was probably a, a, an incredible struggle going on with that individual. Not to mention on top of the fact that, you know, they're never going to see, you know, if you're a father, you're never going to see your dad again. You're never going to see your husband again and those kinds of things. But this is the nature of true faith. True faith enables us to kind of cling to precious promises like Jesus says in Matthew 10, verses 37 through 39. He says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And again, in Matthew 19, 29, Jesus says, And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Jesus is not being facetious here. He's saying this is going to happen to you. You know, you're, you're being asked to be put on the rack and to be beaten to death, and you choose whether you Go home, renounce your faith, and follow 
and take care of your family, or you follow Christ, and these people followed Christ. And so through faith, God's people cling to God's promises, and they say, put me on the drum. And then they enter the presence of Christ, which is the better life. Verses 36 and 37 kind of provide more description of what these heroes of the faith had to endure. First of all, it said, others suffered mocking. Great example of that would be Gideon. Do you remember Gideon's first action of obedience to God against his enemy? He destroyed the, the altar of Baal that his father had put up in their local village. And so the village, villagers came out and said, who did this? We're going to kill you. The father verbally kind of defended his son and kind of turned them away, but they gave him this special name, Jerubael, or Baal, or you know, however you pronounce it. But Jerubel, which basically means he who contends with Baal. And it really was a badge of honor when you think about the true God versus false gods or something like that. But in a, in a neighborhood or a village or a culture that is accepting the worship of Baal and denying the worship of Yahweh, you're the guy who's against our deity. I mean, that was a kind of a cultural insult in Gideon's day to call him such things. The next thing is others suffered flogging. Of course, we know what flogging is. It's also not just the name of the torture, but the name of the whip that was used. The next thing is others suffered chains and imprisonment. Jeremiah, Joseph, Daniel were all imprisoned, just to name a few that were in that list. The fourth thing is others were stoned. And this, of course, is, applies to some of the prophets. We, most of the prophets' deaths are kind of fit in the category of legend, but Jesus says in Matthew chapter 23, verse 37, he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing? So we know that there were prophets sent to Jerusalem, and they were stoned to death. The other thing is, he says that they were sawn in two. Who does this legendarily apply to? Isaiah. We have kind of a, a non-biblical work entitled The Ascension of Isaiah that says that the prophets of Manasseh threw Isaiah into a log and with an iron saw sawed him in half while they stood by laughing and rejoicing. And it says that Isaiah neither cried aloud nor wept. And then finally, it says others were killed with the sword. And the reason there's this list of really very dark ways God's people were tortured and even killed is to show that through faith, they were led into these horrible moments, and they were, through the same faith, given the ability to endure and remain faithful to the Lord. And really talk about the message for the moment. Sure, there's no doubt that faith that brings about great things would, would be wonderful and does apply in situations where people need great things to happen and that sort of thing. But, but Hebrews, the book of Hebrews was penned around the same time of the persecution, you know, the persecution of the church under Nero was just getting started. You know, and so you're, you're either in Jerusalem hearing about it, or you're closer to Rome and you may be seeing it or something like that. And, and the whole church, you know, worldwide was probably wondering, when is this going to happen to us? When, is, when are the Roman soldiers going to come in and torture us? And so 
God inspires our mystery man to help them live with no doubt in God's promises. No, no matter their circumstances. Now, we, we live in America. It's probably, you know, not necessarily going to happen in our lifetime, but there could be a time when this happens. That, you know, we are gathered here together, and all of a sudden, uniformed individuals come in, and we all spend the night in jail. And way worse can, things can happen, too. So, so this is an indirect message for us as well to, to, to know that true faith might lead us into absolute tragedy, but it doesn't leave us there. It grants us, through that faith, not only the ability to enter into a tragic situation, but also the ability to endure a tragic situation, even to the point of death. Letter number B is... True faith can lead and enable you to live in less than desirable conditions. And now we're talking about the, the way more than running water kind of situations, that, you know, that, that there's no running water, oh no. You know, how many of you have ever heard this term glamping? You know, where you can go and, 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 and not really camp. You know, for the, for the hardcore people, you know, who, you know, build a lean-to out of wood and just sleep under a tree or something like that. There, there's this glamping where you can pretty much go to kind of a, like a mini hotel in the middle of the, of the forest or, or something like that. And so it's glamorized camping or something like that. But these people did not live, they were not glamping. So in verse 37, first of all, it says that these people had no clothes, only animal skins. Okay, so they, they walked about in animal skins. No options in the morning when they got up and kind of flipped through the closet. Do I wear the black skin or the blonde skin or something like that? Maybe, but that's the only options that they have. The second thing is it says they were destitute. Word literally means to be last, and so when it came to prosperity or notoriety or honor, these people were not in the lineup. They were, they were last. It says that they were afflicted, which means to be afflicted or distressed with evil. And then it says they were mistreated, which means they were to be treated, you know, badly or wickedly. You know, in a lot of ways, they were probably the absolute social scapegoats. You could blame all of your problems and all of your sin and all of your troubles on these people. The third thing is they had no homes, said so they stayed in, in, in rough situations, probably to escape danger, but they lived in deserts and mountains, given the idea of the two extremes of ruggedness, you know, of mountains and, and kind of the uncultivated wasteland of a desert. And it says they lived in dens and caves, and there's a difference between the two. A den is kind of a more open mouth kind of cave situation, but they also lived in caves, which literally just means holes. So they probably walked up to a hole in the ground and got in. But true faith can lead and enable you to live in less than desirable conditions as well. You know, you hear the stories of, you know, I remember as a kid just listening. I, I grew up in a very missions-oriented church as well and, uh, and, and just heard stories of missionaries going overseas and, you know, and then they go to their first little stayover place and they turn on the light and the roaches scatter. And all the Americans go, ooh, you know, because we have pest control services and other things like that. Not that there's anything wrong with that. 
But I say all that just to say that that true faith leads you to serve the world. And, and I love how when our missionaries come here, they talk about these, you know, unreached areas. And they say the reason they're unreached is because they're absolutely crummy places. But we refined and educated folks can go to the crummy places in faith and deal with the roaches. Letter number C. True faith produces a character that the, wor- the, the world can under- can't understand, value, or have. True faith produces a character that the world can't understand, value, or have. And therefore, true faith condemns the world. This is a really important point. It says, according to verse 38, it says, These believers who through faith were living in caves, wearing animal skins, and probably not having three square meals a day, were no doubt ridiculed by the world. The world, going back to their homes and changing into their evening wear and having dinner, probably thought that they were so much better than the poor, destitute Christians living in their desert holes. But in reality, the people in those holes were greater than this world deserves. The world ought to honor those people, but instead they mistreat them. And by doing so, the world is condemned by by those who, through faith, need only Christ in a cave. The world looks on these people and say, you know, they're destitute, they're poor. How ridiculous that they don't have these clothes or this status or anything like that. These people, they have given up everything that we pursue after for our own personal satisfaction and joy. What is wrong with these people? They're fools. And by the world saying such things, they condemn themselves by calling God's people who only need Christ in a cave, fools. Final point. Told you there was a lot. Final point. Exercising true faith can lead to experiencing great things, which we saw, or to enduring great tragedy, which we saw. And here's the icing on the cake here. But it will always lead to eternal victory. It will always lead to eternal victory. What do I mean by eternal victory? Well, the first thing is this. True faith commends those who exercise it. Now, this is very important. Verse 39 and verse 2 point to the fact that the people of old, okay, Abel, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, those people, and the people who are living destitute lives in caves are both commended by God for their faith. Isn't that interesting? That they are both commended by God for their faith. So, so if that's the case, that, that God, due to his condemnation, puts people who have seen glorious triumph and people who have wake up every day not wanting their lives on the same level of they are commended by me. I am not ashamed to be called their God. So what does it mean then to be commended? Well, commended basically just means to testify strongly. To, to bear an honorable testimony. It's literally martyreo, we get our word martyr from it. It just means to give a testimony. And God gives a good testimony, an honorable testimony to everyone involved in Hebrews 11, no matter if they're on one side of verse 35 or the other side of verse 35. And we don't have enough time to get into great detail with this, but do we know who we are outside of the grace of God? I mean, do we know who we are outside of the grace of God? We are sinners, We are offensive. 
We are selfish, we are prideful, we are dense, and we are foolish. And that's important to know because you flip it and then you say, do you know who God is? He is all-knowing. He is infinitely holy. He is pure and righteous altogether. Yet, through faith, God testifies strongly about us. This perfect and holy God looks on an absolute fool like me and says, I'm not ashamed to be his God. He bears an eternal, eternal, excuse me, he bears an eternal, honorable testimony for those who have true faith. Now, there's, there's nothing wrong with others saying about you, oh, he's a great guy, or, or he's a great gal, but, but, or she's a great gal, excuse me, but the, but the commendation that all of us in this room need to strive for is to hear the Lord say, well done, good and faithful servant. That is the commendation we ought to be striving for. That's why social media is such a farce. Let me chase a rabbit that's not in my notes for just a second. Oh, I got 30 likes. Oh, I got 50 likes. Oh, I got 100 likes. Who cares? We looked at this earlier, but remember when Jesus said, whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is what's happening here. If you forsake, don't pursue after the very temporary commendation of this world in order to run hard after the eternal commendation of the Lord, then you will have found your life rather than have lost it. True faith receives the commendation of God, and it is worth all of our might. The second thing is, Eternal victory means true faith unites all saints under Christ. Troy offered to me, I think earlier this week, um, the opportunity to, to kind of set aside the last two verses and let you handle it the next week, and I almost took you up on it last night, brother. Um, there's a lot in those two verses Verse 39 to 40 is just the most perfect bridge I've ever seen between chapters. I know chapters didn't exist originally in Scripture, but it is. It's glorious. But let's go with it. So throughout the list of Hebrews 11, Mystery Man pointed out that these heroes and heroines of the faith had this, this future hope. So Abraham looked for the city built by God in verse 10. They desired a better country in verse 16. Moses looked forward to the reward in, in verse 26. Those tortured for their faith looked forward to rising again to a better life in verse 35. They all longed to be with God, and so they had this, this future hope of being with Him. And, and though he saw, and, and though these people in Hebrews 11 saw many promises come true in their lives, they did not, according to verse 39, receive what was promised. So, so what was the thing promised that they did not receive? Well, the short answer is Jesus. The long answer is everything that is promised about Jesus in the book of Hebrews. So all of the saints in Hebrews 11 died before Jesus came. And whatever limited information and, and promises they had that a Messiah was coming, they, those promises were never fulfilled in their lifetime. They died not experiencing the promises of a Messiah. They did not receive the promise that, for instance, Jesus would be our perfect high priest who, who, who offered the perfect sacrifices of, of himself 
a sacrifice that actually did atone for sins, granting forgiveness of sins and and entrance into the presence of God, as we see in Hebrews chapter 4 and 5 and 7 through 10. That is a huge subject matter in there about Christ being our high priest who offers himself on the Day of Atonement as that perfect sacrifice that actually saves you, not the blood of goats and bulls and other things like that. They did not receive the promise that Jesus would be the mediator of a new covenant in chapter 9, a covenant that would actually, again, save others from sin. And and so these saints were, were under, because of the time they were in and locked in, these saints were under the old covenant that was unable to perfect anyone. As Hebrews 10.1 says, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. I can imagine the high priest entering the Holy of Holies every year and just seeing caked on blood and being reminded of the fact not only that without the forgiveness, uh, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin, but realizing that, why am I doing this every year? Because it doesn't save. So how did these saints of old enter into heaven when they died? They clung to God and, and whatever promises, you know, they, they received from Him. You know, a lot of people say, well, they look forward to the cross, you know, as, as kind of the example, but they didn't see the cross. They didn't know anything like that. They, they, they did look forward and, and counted on a salvation that would be provided to them by God, but they didn't know how that salvation would be provided. Because of their limited knowledge, they had an incomplete faith. But we do not have an incomplete faith. Folks, it is... A, it is It is an amazing gift to be born on this side of the cross. It is an absolute treasure and grace of God to be born on this side of the cross. Verse 40 says that we have been given something better. And there's no doubt that the faith of the saints of old was inspirational. I mean, we're talking about miracles, conquering kingdoms, resurrections, and endurance during tremendous sufferings. But they could only trust in what God was able to do. We look back to a Savior, and we trust in what God has already done. We know that Christ is all that He is in the book of Hebrews. We know He is our high priest. We know He is the mediator of of a new covenant. We know that He is the one who, who spoke the worlds into existence and upholds all things by the word of His power. But we also know that He is the Christ of the Bible, that everything that's said about Him throughout all of Scripture We can go, it happened here, it happened there, it happened here. We have a perfect faith founded on the perfect work of Christ. And so when verse 39 and 40 say, and all these, talking about all of the people listed, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. That's a complicated statement. But what it means is that even though the saints of old were commended through their faith, it was a faith that would not be complete until Christ came, died on the cross, rose from the dead. And we who are on this side of the cross have something that is better. We have a complete faith based on what was already done. But we don't look upon the Old Testament saints in any way and go, neener, neener, neener. 
We have something better. The ultimate conclusion from this verse and these last two verses is, either way, the central issue for the Old Covenant saints and the New Testament saints has always been faith in Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And the incomplete faith that God would provide a Savior and the complete faith that a Savior has come have one thing in common, faith in a Savior. We will one day, and this is amazing, we will one day be united with Abel. We'll be walking around heaven saying, where's Abel? That's that guy over there. We will one day be united with Rahab. We will be united with Noah and Moses and all of them because of what God did through Christ. And that union, folks, as we are in new bodies, sin-free, will be eternal victory. It was a few weeks ago, I woke up early and just tried to sneak out of the bed, and in my 50-year-old body, my knees did not cooperate with the silence to keep my wife, you know, asleep. You know, snap, crackle, pop. You know, and, and I just kind of thought in my mind, you know, I can tell that, you know, most folks, when they, when they get to a certain age and they get older and the body doesn't operate properly and that sort of thing, really look forward to heaven so that they have these new bodies, But folks, it's an even more amazing thing that one day we're going to be in glory and somehow be untouched by sin. Never a selfish thought. Never an unkind word. Can't imagine it. But that is the eternal victory that happens as a result of faith and trust in Christ. Now, remember one of the main themes in this book, that that some of the Hebrew believers were uh, wanting to go back to the old law. They wanted to go back to the old covenant. They wanted to trust in the righteous deeds done under the law. They wanted to go back to the ceremonial law or the dietary laws in order to be right with God. Well, the end of Hebrews 11 really obliterates that concept. You know, maybe there are these Hebrew believers who are saying, you know, we want to go back to Moses and David and our ancestors. The traditions are there. Oh, you mean the the people who were commended through their faith and not their works. And oh, by the way, you know, as long as you're considering going back to trusting in something other than Christ, They had a faith that was incomplete in comparison to yours, so why are you going back? You have seen Christ, you know Christ, you have trusted in Christ. They had no knowledge of such things. And you want to go back to where they were living? Not a wise decision. And then just... Just a final challenge to us. Kind of the question is, what are you trusting in? I don't think we have a lot of Hebrews in in this congregation. We might, but I don't think we have a lot of Hebrews in this congregation. And so I don't think the option of necessarily going back to the law is something that's on our minds. Going back to familial traditions and, you know, and uh, generations after generations of family traditions and things like that in order to, you know, be right with God. But everybody in this room is trusting in something. Oh, my, 
My church attendance makes me right with God. I don't cuss. Never have. As Troy said last week, you don't smoke or chew or go with girls that do. You know, those kinds of things. I, I, you know, what are you trusting in today? Because that's really the challenge here. It, it doesn't quite apply to us in the sense of, of we're Hebrews thinking about going to the old law or anything like that. But if we think, you know, that we have something better than faith in Christ alone, you're wrong. Whether it's a thousands of years traditional religion kind of thing that, you know, names Yahweh several times and other things like that, like the Jewish religion, those Hebrew believers would have been wrong to go back to that. We are only commended and united with, commended for and united with the body of Christ through faith, through trust in Christ who might lead us one day to great things. Cancer-free diagnosis. Tons of money in debt. It just shows up from nowhere. But it might lead you into a hole in the ground where you're running away from a government that wants to kill you. And the only thing on your back is sheepskin. But in neither of those situations, you can endure, you can rejoice, and you can glorify God because of faith. You won't do that in any other option. If you, if you trust in yourself or your own hoops you can jump through or, or any other thing that you're trusting in, whether it's your religious credentials or your attendance role or anything like that, if you're trusting in anything else, there will be something that makes you look at Christ and say, no, thank you. I want a house over my head. No, thank you. I need my phone. No, thank you. I have to have the acceptance of friends. No, thank you. I want this miracle to happen in my life so that I can write a book and sell thousands of copies. No, thank you, Lord. No glory to you. It's all about me. Or will you trust in Christ alone for the forgiveness of sins? as your only hope for salvation. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this precious, amazing chapter of Hebrews 11. It teaches us so much about what it means to trust in you. God, I pray that we will take the lessons we have learned from this chapter and be people who walk by faith and not by sight be a people who, no matter if we are uh, destitute or if we are in uh, palaces or castles or whatever, Lord, wherever you might lead, I pray that we will by faith rejoice not in treasure, fame, or even self-pity, but may we rejoice in the fact that you saw fit, a holy and righteous God to look upon sinners like us and to say, I am not ashamed to be their God. I pray that that will be everyone's story here today and beyond. 
And I pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.